Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang here. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I host this show and tell you, dear listener, about my debut cookbook. It's coming out October 24th, and it's called A Very Chinese Cookbook. We've got 104 incredible Chinese recipes that are fail-proof. They've been tested in our kitchens again and again. We've got dim sum, street food from Sichuan, dumplings from Shanghai, noodles from Taiwan, and American Chinese takeout classics. And if you want to hear the backstory of how this improbable cookbook came to be, look in the back catalog of this proof feed and search for the episode, My Father, the YouTube Star. Anyway, the book, again, is called A Very Chinese Cookbook. It's out October 24th. Find it at your favorite bookseller. Please, please, please buy it. My employment is on the line. Okay, not really, but kind of, just a bit. All right, on to this week's show. You go to a sushi restaurant. You pick up a piece of sushi. Maybe it's a tuna nigiri or a California roll. And you dip it in the soy sauce. You take a sip of miso soup. You order a glass of sake. The soy sauce, the miso, the sake, those are key flavors that make Japanese cuisine taste Japanese. They're part of Japan's cultural identity. For hundreds of years, those ingredients were all made in wooden barrels called kiyoke. The wood helped cultivate a unique microbiome in the barrels at each brewery. It also helped kickstart the fermentation process and imparted whatever was being made with a signature taste. That taste could only be replicated in that very environment. Think of it like sourdough bread that uses wild yeast. Kiyoke were part of the flavor of Japanese food. But after the Second World War, things changed. Japan had been devastated by the war. Allied forces were involved with rebuilding and reshaping everything from roads to the Constitution. It was a period of rapid industrialization. There was the idea that modern and Western was better. When it came to soy sauce and other seasonings, steel tanks and lab-grown yeast made production more efficient and made the products more consistent. More of the process could be mechanized. Now, most Japanese seasonings are made in steel tanks instead of wooden ones. That has fundamentally changed the taste of Japanese food. And some argue it's made Japanese food less delicious. The craft of making kiyoke won't survive without traditional brewing. And the craft of traditional brewing won't survive without kiyoke. But there's a group of people trying to keep these crafts alive, one barrel at a time. And they're having a lot of fun doing it. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, saving the craft of kiyoke. Can a group of brewers and carpenters save the art of wooden barrel making? Or will kiyoke be lost to history forever? I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening. Stick around. Reporter Hannah Kirshner brings us today's story. I'm on a ferry crossing Japan's inland sea. It's January and the sky is cold and blue, with the occasional snowflake fluttering down. Islands jut out of the gray-blue water, and I wonder if one of them is Shodoshima, the island where I'm headed. The whole island is less than 60 square miles, 
but it has 19 small soy sauce breweries. These breweries are a legacy of the island's location along a 16th century marine shipping route. And also, you need salt to brew soy sauce, and you can get salt from the sea, so an island was a good place for a brewery. Maybe it's hyperbole, but I've heard that people from Shodoshima carry soy sauce with them when they travel because soy sauce in other places just doesn't cut it. The seasoning of a lot of Japanese food is just so simple and subtle that the quality of the ingredients makes a huge difference in the taste. Think of ohitashi, the side dish of greens that are blanched and then soaked in dashi broth and soy sauce. When the greens are really fresh and flavorful, the dashi is made from scratch, and the soy sauce has deep umami, it's so delicious. But when the ingredients aren't so good, the ohitashi falls flat. It's just salty boiled greens. Living in Japan, I've learned to keep at least two kinds of soy sauce in my pantry. A salty, light-colored one to use in stewed and simmered dishes so it doesn't make the broth brown. And then a more general-purpose one that's darker. That's what I'll drip onto cold tofu or use to season a stir-fry. Most home cooks have these too. But if you're really into food, you might have more. There's soy sauce that's specifically for sashimi. And then there are regional differences too. Like where I live in Ishikawa Prefecture, the local soy sauce is sweet. When I get a chance, I make a point of collecting little bottles of traditionally made soy sauce from other parts of Japan. Because each one has its own character. That's what makes it fun. It's part of what makes local food taste local. It's not like I'm against technology or efficiency. I mean, I'm glued to my cell phone and I love instant ramen. But I really believe that doing work by hand gives people meaning in their lives. And that's why I do so much reporting on traditional ways of making things. These products, whether it's a handmade wooden bowl or sake from a family brewery, the process of making them involves skill and intuition. And they often use local materials. As a result, they convey something about the people and places that made them. A lot of the time, these practices are environmentally sustainable too. That's definitely true of kiyoke. These wooden barrels can last over a hundred years, long enough for the trees needed to make them to regrow. And when a barrel is at the end of its life, it can just rot back into the earth. Steel or concrete or plastic tanks have a much shorter life. Manufacturing them causes pollution, and the materials are much more complicated to dispose of. All over Japan, and all over the world really, traditional crafts are dying out because people choose cheaper mass-produced products and people don't necessarily want to take over these labor-intensive jobs. Traditional soy sauce is no different. But I'm headed to one of these small breweries on Shodoshima, Yamaroku Shoyu, to an event that's meant to reignite interest in Kiyoke soy sauce production. The Kiyoke Summit is a three-day-long barrel-making workshop and business conference, and a one-day festival open to the public. But I've heard the whole thing is kind of like a party. I wonder how much an event like this can change the course of a dying industry, and I'm really curious what kind of people I'll meet there. I get off the ferry on Shodoshima, and I catch a bus towards Yamaroku Shoyu on the eastern side of the island. My name is Yasuo Yamamoto. 
Yamaroku Soy Sauce, fifth generation. Yasuo Yamamoto is the fifth generation to run Yamaroku Shoyu, and he's the host of the Kiyoke Summit. You might have seen Yamamoto in the Netflix show Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, or read about Yamaroku Shoyu in a newspaper article. Shoyu, by the way, is the Japanese word for soy sauce. <laughs> Yamamoto actually doesn't like the term soy sauce because he says sauce makes people think of something concocted, like gravy or cream sauce. But shoyu is a fermented product. He wants people to think of shoyu more like wine or whiskey. And if mass produced shoyu is like supermarket box wine, then what Yamamoto makes is like natural wine. Or it's like small batch vintage Scotch whiskey. I crowd into the Yamaroku Shoyu Brewery with about 30 other people to hear about the origins of the Kiyoke Summit. Yeast. You can smell it. It's a big old warehouse built with fat wooden posts and beams, like whole tree trunks. The walls are tsuchikabe, mud plaster. And there are 86 kiyoke. We're crammed into a small space in between kiyoke that tower a few feet over our heads. The light is dim. Compared to a sterile modern brewing facility that uses enameled steel tanks, this place is alive with microorganisms that contribute to fermentation. Yamamoto points to colonies of yeast and helpful microbes growing like moss on the outside of the barrels, and even on the rafters and the ceiling. You wouldn't see that in a modern industrial brewery where they use commercial yeast and keep the environment sterile. But here, these microbes are essential. Yamamoto explains that the microbes are different in each brewery, and each has their own characteristics. I've heard stories about breweries cleaning all this stuff away only to find that it totally alters the taste of their shoyu. Shoyu is made by fermenting a mash of soybeans, wheat, water, salt, and koji. Koji is a mold propagated on grains and soybeans that turns their starches into fermentable sugars. You might have heard me explain the importance of koji in another episode for proof about making sake. Industrial shoyu production, like for the stuff you find in most supermarkets, uses yeast and lactic acid bacteria that are cultivated in a lab. And these big factory like breweries speed up fermentation to just a few months by controlling the temperature of the mash. That makes a very consistent product. The flavor is a little less nuanced, but it's easier to control the quality and it's possible to mass produce. That's how you get products like Kikoman, probably the best known soy sauce in the world. And Kikoman isn't bad, it tastes good. It's like the Heinz ketchup of shoyu. And I have both those products in my own pantry. But I don't want to live in a world where everything tastes the same wherever you go. There's still enough difference in local styles of shoyu and other seasonings that when I travel around Japan, something like a simple bowl of udon noodles tastes saltier or sweeter, or looks darker or lighter, depending on the local palate. Here at Yamaroku Shoyu, the yeast and other helpful microbes come from the environment instead of from a lab. 
All that stuff growing on the barrels and rafters is what makes the shoyu ferment. The mash ferments for at least a year and a half and up to five years. The temperature rises and falls with the seasons, changing the pace of fermentation. Fast when it's warm, slow when it's cold. Yamamoto stirs the tanks with a long pole and uses his experience and intuition to decide when it's ready. This is physically demanding work that takes skill. The mash is poured into cloth envelopes and pressed. The liquid that drips out is shoyu, which is then clarified and pasteurized. I have a small bottle of Yamaroku shoyu in my kitchen at home. It tastes as deep as its rich brown color, like a dark well of flavor you could tumble into and just keep falling and falling. When you pair it with mushrooms or red meat, it makes their flavors even deeper. Yamamoto says that a neighboring brewery uses the exact same ingredients, but their soy sauce tastes soft and light. Why? Because of the different microbes in their brewery. He says the flavor of the shoyu also reflects the character of the owner. Yamamoto says he can only make shoyu with a very strong personality. And that's what's so cool about Kiyoke shoyu. Each one is an expression of the people and place that made it. You can't usually find it in supermarkets. You have to get it from a specialty shop or straight from a brewery. In the dim light of the brewery, surrounded by microscopic life forms, everyone is hushed, like it's a church of shoyu. Yamamoto leads us towards a newer barrel. He tells us that in 2009, he needed to replace some of his kiyoke. This is the seed of how the kiyoke summit started. When Yamamoto placed the order, the barrel maker confessed that he hadn't had an order since before World War II. This is in 2009. Most of the barrels in this brewery are 100 to 150 years old. Yamamoto says that by his children's or grandchildren's generation, these barrels will wear out. Kiyoke shoyu currently represents just 1% of soy sauce production in Japan. Without wooden barrels to make it in, this kind of shoyu could die out in a generation. Kiyoke miso and sake, too. Yamamoto wanted to do something before it's too late. So, in 2015, he and some of his carpenter friends started to gather every January to make kiyoke and share techniques. My name is Naoto Sakaguchi. Sakaguchi is one of those carpenters. He used to mostly build houses. He says that 12 years ago, there was only one company left in Japan that made these kind of big kiyoke, and they were thinking of quitting. He realized he needed to learn and share this craft if he wanted it to continue. The construction of kiyoke is fairly complex. Everything has to fit together just right, and it's all fastened with bamboo pegs and belts, no metal hardware, because salt and water would corrode metal hardware. And there's no sealant on the wood, just the natural oils, 
brought out by using a hand plane to finish it. So Sakaguchi and Yamamoto started sharing that knowledge, and that grew into the Kiyoke Summit. Sakaguchi says he gets a deep sense of satisfaction from this work that's not like anything else. But for kiyoke making to be a viable profession, there has to be a demand for kiyoke. Yamamoto explains that their goal is to bring kiyoke shoyu from 1% to 2% of the market. 2% might not sound like much, but that's double current production. Yamamoto says if they can achieve 2%, then consumers will have twice as many opportunities to taste kiyoke shoyu. Shoyu makers will see an increase in profits. Kiyoke craftsmen will have a job. And consumers will have more opportunities to enjoy really good shoyu. But how much impact could one annual gathering have? when almost every traditional industry is declining. Can they really double production of kiyoke shoyu? The whole kiyoke summit takes place in the dirt parking lot of Yamaroku shoyu every January. There are a couple of tents set up for snacks and activities, and there are fire pits with people crowding around them to stay warm. Even though Shodoshima is temperate enough to grow olives, the winter wind is biting. I'm wearing long johns under my clothes, a wool sweater, and two coats. There are panel discussions each day about themes like kiyoke and design, and a future we can be proud of for our children. A lot of the discussions touch on how to market kiyoke products and tell their story so that consumers will understand why it's worth paying a little more. The session right now is called Kiyoke and Craftsmen. The stage is four big kiyoke lined up in a row. The barrels are about six feet tall, so the speakers have to climb up a ladder to sit on top. And these four barrels will be auctioned off before the weekend is over. Perched on top of the barrels, Yamamoto and the other speakers energize the crowd with call-and-response cheers, and plenty of dad jokes. In the audience, we're all sitting on little barrels that are turned upside down with a cushion on top. When prompted, we all pump our fists and shout, OK! OK! OK means barrel, and kioke are wooden barrels, but OK as in all right, is used in Japanese, too. The puns don't end there. <laughs> Whenever Yamamoto gets the chance, he says, shoyu koto desu. It's a pun on the phrase, soyu koto desu, as in, and that's that. Only, soyu becomes shoyu. In between talk sessions, there's barrel making. Some of the work has to be done by professionals, but they involve the participants as much as possible. The lead craftsmen are all wearing silly hats. One makes it look like he has samurai hair, partially shaved on top. Another has tufts of frizzy gray hair sticking out the sides of a bald cap. And one more has a hood on with fuzzy ears. 
As I wander over to see what they're doing, a man in an apron that says Kaneyoshi Shoyu, the name of his brewery, is helping the craftsman fit braided bamboo rings around a barrel that's almost finished. There's also a young guy in a red scarf and a white coat watching the craftsman intently. The barrels are made of sugi. Sugi is an evergreen in the cypress family. Its wood is resistant to rot and pests. To make kiyoke, vertical slats of sugi are connected by bamboo pegs. Then, rings of braided bamboo hold them together from the outside. Inside these rings, there's another strip of bamboo wrapped in rope that helps the braided bamboo grip the wood. These strips of bamboo are like 20 or 30 feet long, and the craftsmen get people to line up along the whole thing, twisting it. One person holds the end of the twine and wraps it around the bamboo as everyone twists. They make up a different silly chant every time. And all weekend, Yamamoto is running around with a whistle, handing out yellow cards for infractions like saying soy sauce instead of shoyu or not having enough fun. (laughs) I do a lot of reporting on traditional crafts in Japan. I've written about people making the masks for no theater, making wooden bowls, building stone walls, all kinds of things that are painstakingly made by hand. There aren't many young people doing this kind of work, and the few young guys, they're usually men, are in their 40s or 50s. Yamamoto's age, the age of his friends who are leading the barrel making. So I'm really surprised to see quite a few people here in their 20s. That's who I want to talk to. A young man, Ryo Yoshikawa, hands a pamphlet to me and the woman standing next to me. It's about his family brewery, Inoue Honpen, where he works with his parents and brother. I ask his age. Ryo is 24, and it's already his fourth time at the Kiyoke Summit. Two years ago, he and his family bought a pair of barrels at the auction here and brought them back to their brewery in Nara on the back of a small truck. It takes about five hours to drive to Nara from here, including a ferry ride. At Ryo's family brewery, they make miso and shoyu in a pretty traditional way, but they weren't using kiyoke. Once they brought back the two kiyoke, they started making a special line of kiyoke shoyu. I asked Ryo if the shoyu is different. He says it's not necessarily better, but it's definitely different. He says kiyoke shoyu has a gentle flavor, but deep. Another young guy I meet is Kosei Okamoto. Uh, my family's company's name is Okamoto Soy Sauce. Okamoto. Okamoto is our family name. He's the one I saw earlier with the red scarf watching the craftsmen work. 
Kosei has a sweet face and long bangs that swoop across his forehead. He looks very put together. May I ask how old you are? Yeah, I'm 20, 21 years old. Kosei tells me he's studying business in Tokyo. He came to the summit with his dad, who makes shoyu in Osaki Kamejima, a little island in Hiroshima Prefecture. Kosei's great-grandfather chose that location because it was on a busy marine shipping route. That made it easy to get ingredients and to distribute the shoyu. So when you were young, were you curious about the family business or not really? Uh, not really, actually. <laughs> That's normal. <laughs> yeah. For Kiyoke shoyu to continue, people like Ryo and Kosei will need to take over their family businesses, or other young people will need to take an interest. Ryo is already working in his family brewery, but Kosei seems pretty unsure of what he wants to do. Uh, maybe I want to expand my family business in the future, but I'm not sure, like, how many years later or something. Yeah. Shoyu was just something in his life that he took for granted. I guess, so, growing up at home, the food must always be cooked with, like, your family soy sauce, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Then if you go other places, do you feel like, oh, the soy sauce isn't as good or yeah. the food doesn't taste right? Yeah, actually, this, uh, this kind of story that made me, made me want to expand my business. Like, when I... Kosei tells me about the time he was an exchange student in Australia during high school. That's when he started to see things differently. And I wanted to uh, explain how good our soy sauce is to my host family. But my, my host family couldn't understand it because they never tried like any good Kiyoke soy sauce. He says he couldn't really explain it because his English wasn't good enough yet. But he really wanted them to understand this piece of his identity and culture that up to that moment, he didn't even know was so important to him. I really felt something like, uh, I need to expand my family business or like Kyoke soy sauce business to make more people to know Kyoke, like how good Kyoke soy sauce is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what did they have in Australia? Maybe just Kikoman or something? Yeah. <laughs> But so does Kiyoke soy sauce, you think it really tastes that different? It's really different. How is it now? Can you explain it? Have you found yeah, words it's, yet? I can say. It's like Kiyoke soy sauce is really deep. It has really deep, deep taste. And then it has umami taste. As day one of the summit shifts into the evening, it's time for shoyu tasting. Every evening, several shoyu companies set up tasting stations. Most of them are family businesses. And most of them have at least three kinds of shoyu, from light to dark. As I chat with Kosei, he and his dad are offering tastes of the three kinds of kiyoke shoyu that they make. Basically, we have three different types of soy sauce. One year fermented one, like two years one, and also the three years one. So like the two years should be the most standard one. And then the one year one is like lighter and it's more like salty. The lighter one is usually called usukuchi shoyu. It's the kind people use for soups and simmered dishes, 
so it doesn't color or overpower the ingredients. The two years one is basically you can use for everything. Three years one is more like strong one, so it should be like for example good with like tuna, salmon, like some kind of sushi. Another brewer explains that pairing shoyu is like pairing wine. The way you might pair a white wine with poultry or white fish, a red wine with red meat or tuna, you can pair shoyu that way too, he says. I walk over to where there are these gorgeous sashimi boats piled up with all different kinds of raw fish. Oh my goodness, look at that. We get these little tasting dishes, like paint palettes for shoyu, so we can see for ourselves how different styles of shoyu and different fish pair together. I find pieces of booty, yellowtail, my favorite, and I discover that I like the way a medium-dark, slightly sweet shoyu complements the oily fish. But honestly, I taste so many different kinds of shoyu, and they're all so good that it's hard to remember what's what. There's craft beer, sake, and wine to taste, too, mostly from makers who use wooden barrels in some part of their process. As it gets dark out, I huddle around one of the fire pits, talking with a sake brewer and a food writer. Over the course of the day, I met miso and soy sauce brewers, chefs, cooking teachers, retailers, all these people really care about local food. Not in some preachy or performative way. They care about food that expresses something about the people and place that made it. They want to live in a world where the taste of each place is different and where small businesses thrive. That's why they're here. But what surprised and delighted me the most was seeing young people here. Meeting Ryo and Kose and hearing their thoughts about Kiyoke makes me excited for this industry. Yesterday I got to my hotel room. I thought, why, why does this room smell like cigarettes? And then I realized <laughs> all my clothes smell like the fire. <laughs> On the second day of the summit, lunch is the highlight. For me, at least. I don't know whether to go for rice or ramen first. <laughs> There's shoyu ramen with thick, wavy noodles and broth flavored with white shoyu. The white shoyu gives the broth a flavor that's mellow, faintly sweet, and full of umami. It might be my favorite ramen ever. And then there's rice cooked over a fire. The rice is for tamago kake gohan. That's where you crack a raw egg onto hot rice and mix it together with a little soy sauce. What's that? Oh, do I eat raw eggs? Mm, not so much, but I think I'll try it this time because it looks good. <laughs> I run into Kose, the young guy with the red scarf I'd met the day before. We're standing at this long table with all kinds of fancy eggs. There are eggs with blue shells, <laughs> eggs from hens fed a special diet, even eggs infused with yuzu citrus. <laughs> And of course, there are dozens of kinds of shoyu to choose from. We stir the egg and shoyu into the rice with chopsticks and slurp it up. Kose asks me if I'm okay with eating raw egg after all. 
he accepts the raw egg. Yeah, actually, I thought it was really good. Uh, maybe just because the rice and the eggs and the shoyu okay, is yeah, yeah. all so good. <laughs> which which shoyu did you use? Your own or somebody else's? Uh, my own. My own one. <laughs> Kosei is using the shoyu his family makes. Yeah, do you ever get tired of shoyu? Like, oh, I Always around, around me. I don't want to think about shoyu. I don't want to taste shoyu. Does it ever happen, or you just don't want Only once or twice. Only once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> when? Kose says when he was in elementary school and he'd walk home with his classmates, he felt like the smell of the shoyu brewery was too strong. I can imagine a kid feeling embarrassed about that. Are you getting any inspiration or new information here to help you make your decision about uh, what to do? Maybe, yeah, maybe. A little bit. Yesterday, Kosei said he used to have no interest in the family business. But he came here thinking maybe someday he might want to be involved. And already, since yesterday, I can hear his thinking shifting. Kosei says he met other young guys here who he never would have met otherwise. If it weren't for this event, they would all be at their own breweries and not even know that each other existed. I want to go around, uh, visit, visit around the uh, company in Japan. And then like work or just talk with like the people like my father. And then... I want to make my decision like after that. Now he's considering taking a year off from college to go around the country visiting shoyu breweries. I ask him what he wants to do if he doesn't take over the family business. Just just a dream job for everyone like consulting like IV investment banking or something or like trading company or those kind of things. I can't tell if that's really his dream or if that's just what he thinks he's supposed to want to do. Those jobs sound prestigious. Brewing shoyu, on the other hand, is basically manual labor. You don't get to wear a suit and have a fancy job title. But the brewery is on his mind too. He says even if he does eventually go back to the shoyu brewery, the business skills he'd learn in a white-collar job would be useful. Kosei's father has to do the brewing and the business side of things, so he doesn't have time to expand. So I think it's a big problem. Yeah. So I need to solve it. After lunch, they hold the Kiyoke auction. Some of the auctioned-off kiyoke go to breweries where they'll use kiyoke for the first time. There's so much energy here, and kiyoke is the center of it all. But what happens after everyone goes home? Can this event help create a new generation of craftspeople, or will kiyoke shoyu die out? After the break, we'll get back to the kiyoke summit. Hey folks, it's Kevin Pang. You know, when I tell people I work at America's Test Kitchen, they assume I have the answer to questions like, what should I bring to a friend's barbecue? Or what should I pack for my kid's lunch? But 
what do I know? I'm just a podcast host. Hey, Kevin. Just who I need. It's our amazing test cook, Olivia Counter. I got you. Heard of mangoes? They can be used in just about anything. I mean, yeah, they're my favorite fruit, but they go in anything? Really? Yeah, the sweet and tangy flavors are the perfect accent in Cook's Country's seared salmon with mango mint salsa. If you like fruity and refreshing desserts, mangoes brighten up Cook's Illustrated's mango, kiwi, and blueberry pavlovas. And you can let them stand out, the star of the show, and my personal favorite, Amki Lassi, or our take on Mango Lassi. Savory, sweet, refreshing, mangoes fit in without blending in. Unless you blend them, then they blend in. Learn more about the versatility of mangoes at mango.org. And now, back to our story. Today is the third and last day of the conference, and then the final day is a festival open to the public. It's cold and windy again. The craftsmen are hurrying to finish making the barrels. They've whipped around strips of bamboo that are about 45 feet long, braiding them into rings. They've connected the slats with bamboo pins. And now they're slipping the braided rings over the barrels and hammering them into place. They're fitting the bottoms of the barrels into place. They're planing the inside of each barrel with a special curved hand plane. My name is Yusei Shido. Nice to meet you. My name is Kohei Kasahara. Nice to meet you. These two guys in their 20s have been helping with the barrel making since the beginning of the summit. 22. 22. 22. You're both 22. Yeah. They're already coopers, actually. They make small Western-style barrels, like for aging whiskey. And now they're learning to make big kiyoke. And that's the dream, right? That young people will take up this craft and carry it forward. Still, though, there has to be a market for the barrels they make. The crafts are interconnected. I talked to this couple. I think they're in their late 30s or early 40s, and they're both kind of shy. Keizo Okuda is the guy in the Kaneyoshi shoyu apron that I saw helping the craftsman on the first day. And I heard him bidding on one of the barrels in the auction earlier. His brewery in Fukuoka is 102 years old. Hiromi Okano has been working with Okuda in his family shoyu business for 10 years. They bought their first kiyoke from the auction here and started using it. Okura says that using kiyoke is fun, and he says it brings the brewer closer to the fermentation. The 
Okano says the Kiyoke shoyu has a totally different fragrance, which Okuda describes as fruity and lemony. It's his third time at the Kiyoke summit, and her second. He says that he looks forward to seeing the same people every year and meeting new people too. And Okano says it looks like everyone was having so much fun using Kiyoke. They wanted to be part of it. Okuda thinks that little by little, Kiyoke are becoming more popular. Okuda rushes off. It seems like he needs to go prepare for something. The closing ceremony starts. People are giving speeches about what a great weekend it's been and how we must continue these crafts. I wander over to watch the craftsmen finish barrel making. But then I realize one of the speeches has turned into a marriage proposal. It's Okuda and Okano. Her answer is, okay. She's saying, the lifespan of a kiyoke is longer than the lifespan of one person, and they can be used longer than we're alive. Because we've received the gift of kiyoke, as we make shoyu together, as we have fun making shoyu together, we hope the next generation will see that, and we can pass on this joy to future generations. So I think I'd like to continue making soy sauce together. This joyful moment shows what a community this has become. The crafts at the heart of this event are also at the center of these people's lives. It turns out there have been half a dozen proposals at the Kiyoke Summit over the years. And after this proposal, one of the carpenters pins all their photos to his t-shirt for the rest of the day. What we lose, if we lose the crafts of Kiyoke and Kiyoke Shoyu, isn't just delicious shoyu. It's a kind of work that connects people with the materials they handle and with each other. Work that gives people a sense of pride and satisfaction. Maybe it's just because I know their story now, but I feel like if I use the shoyu that Okuda and Okano make together, I'll taste their love. The last day of the Kiyoke Summit is the festival. Anyone can attend. Some of the brewers' families come, some foodies, and a lot of local people. It's not crowded, but it's lively. It's a bright sunny day and finally a little warmer. I only need one coat. The big event is the Taga Hooping Contest. Taga are the braided bamboo rings that hold the barrels together. Taga Hooping is hula hooping with Taga. I sign up, of course. I can keep a hula hoop spinning for a really long time, like until I get bored. But the taga is like six or eight feet in diameter, and it's really, really heavy. Plus, the rules are super strict. They've drawn a square, and if you step out of it, you're eliminated. If the edge of the hoop touches the ground, you're out. 
I do make it to the final round, but the edge of my hoop touches the ground and I'm out. The winner is the reigning champion. They actually had to change the rules after last time, when he hooped for 45 minutes in the rain. This time, they cut him off after about five minutes. All this silliness serves a serious purpose, and I think it's working. And actually, I think the playfulness is what makes it work compared to other efforts to preserve traditional crafts. It makes it something people want to be a part of. I mean, I came here as a reporter, but I ended up making friends, and I ended up joining the Taga Hooping. It's exciting to feel the energy of this community coming together, and I feel like I've become part of it a little. But what happens afterwards? Hi, how are you? How have you been? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been six months now since we met at the Kiyoke Summit. Almost, right? About six months after the Kiyoke Summit, I get on the phone with Kosei. He's at his apartment in Tokyo. It turns out Kosei really did take time off from college. He went and helped out at an event promoting Kiyoke Shoyu at a department store in Osaka. As this movement grows, they're branding it as the Kiyoke Craft Revival. Kosei also traveled to a few different shoyu breweries, like he said he would. So like this one year is like for my decision. I go visit like other companies, other craftsmans, and then I want to know more. He went to Inoue Honten in Nara. That's where Ryo Yoshikawa works with his family. Ryo was one of the first young guys I talked to at the summit. And also in Nara, Kosei visited Katagami Brewery, where he says the dad showed him around the whole place. He was actually so nice. And then, like, his wife also, like, welcomed to me. Each brewery had their own way of doing things. In my childhood, like, Sosa's company was kind of part of my life, but I didn't pay much attention for it. Kosei tells me that seeing other breweries made him see his own differently, that he felt more deeply what made each one special. Like, the stories are just so different from each other, I think. Kosei came to realize how important those stories are for showing people the value of Kiyoke Shoyu. Like how his great-grandfather chose a location that took advantage of winds from the sea and mountains. In the morning, like the wind from the sea, the, from the ocean, like goes through the, the house of the Kiyoke. The winds flowing through the warehouse influence the fermentation. Kosei also points out that some breweries use metal or plastic tools. But at his, they use long stirring poles made of sugi, the same wood as the barrels. It's like we try to say, make everything from the local craftsmans and like local ingredients and then like local environment. So they get all these things from the local environment, from local people. So we can say that soy sauce taste is local taste. And then 
the local people also buy the soy sauce and they use it in their family from like 100 years ago. So like at some point, like it becomes the island's culture or taste. It's become the taste of the island. And what is that taste? Like I would describe like it's more soft, kind of rich. Like in Japanese, we say maybe maroyaka or maybe yasashi, just like soft, smooth. Kosei says it doesn't interfere with other flavors in a dish and lets the main ingredient shine, even with something like delicate white fish. Hearing him talk, I want to taste these local flavors. I tell Kosei it sounds like he's ready to start marketing his shoyu. (laughs) Oh, thank you. For now, he still wants to try working for a big trading company or some other prestigious job with a lot of responsibility. Still, it seems like the family business is very much on his mind. He's glad they've kept the same process, using kiyoke, for generations. But as the fourth generation, he feels like if he does take over, he wants to change something. And then, like, so many people love the soy sauce. So that's a difficult point. Like, I need to, like, think much which point I should change or, like, do different things. That was a theme among young people at the Kyoke Summit who were already working in their family businesses. One young woman was updating the website and doing social media for her brewery. Others had idea for new products. They're helping to tell the stories of Kyoke Shoyu in Japan and to the rest of the world. Kosei is even coming to New York this fall to help promote Kyoke Shoyu. The future of Kyoke Shoyu isn't certain. And neither is Kosei's path in life, but I can't help but feel that both are bright. I hope that the Kiyoke craft revival can be a beacon for other industries struggling to stay relevant in an age of convenience and efficiency. A reminder that newer and faster isn't always better. Thanks to Hannah Kirshner for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Alex Kern-Cartarelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio, with sound design supervision by... Matt Boynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by... Anya Gzeshik. Brian Campbell of Signal Sound's composer theme music, additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is... Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Sarah D. Collins. 
Special thanks to Yoko Okimoto, who held Hannah's umbrella and jumped in as a translator when she needed help. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, The Mango Board and Plugra Premium Butter. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.